Welcome back to season two, episode one of Created for Connection, a podcast that explores the way we become isolated from one another, but how God moves us toward connection with him and with each other. In today's episode, Paul and I will introduce season two. Then we'll interview Josh Ross, lead minister at Sycamore View Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee. Josh will be sharing some of his story that highlights grief and what he's learned about living, suffering, and God in the midst of his grief. To everyone listening, we're glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to Season 2 of Creative for Connection. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Here we are. It's good to be here, and good to see you, Kevin. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be seen. Yeah, I love the hat that you're wearing today. (laughs) Thanks. Very, very artistic. Thank you. Man, I'm I'm so excited that we're getting back together for another season. You know, me too. Me too. At for our listeners, you know, when we began this, we really we had this idea for a podcast, and we lined up people we wanted to interview, and it was great. And then, the, you know, we kind of sat with that for a little bit, and we we're trying to figure out what do we want to do from there, and. You know, I think f- both of us felt like the feedback that we got and then just the sense of what God was doing was was motivation to uh, start another round for the second season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I never I, I never dreamed that we would get more than 10 people to listen to it. The fact that, you know, people are listening and subscribing and, and we're, we're getting a following that's growing is really exciting to me because what I think it means is that we're talking about something that people are interested in and that people need to hear. Yeah, definitely. And and we've got an exciting guest that's going to be on a little bit later. And But before we get to that, we just wanted to introduce a little bit about season two and, and recap a little bit from season one. So before we go to uh, kind of our, our themes for the second season, Kevin, what were some of your favorite parts about season one, what did you, what did you like and what did, what surprised you? I think that some of the things that really stood out to me as I was reflecting back, just the, the vulnerability that people were, you know, they were allowing themselves to be known to an audience that they, they couldn't see. And, uh, and we let out in that, and that was, that was a lot of fun but also really challenging too. You know, it was fun to start a podcast, but challenging when we got into realizing, oh man, we've got to share our story. I think what has been most impactful is is the story. Each story that's told, all of us can glean wisdom from it and can identify with parts of it. Yeah, and we know everybody's story is different, but our hope is, like we say at the end of every episode is that when when we share these stories or our 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 friends share these stories it gives people a sense that they're not alone that not only uh, is god with them but others have experienced things that uh, that are similar to what they've experienced and that there's a sense of hope there's a sense of being together in it uh there's a sense of kind of facing the darkness um and and others are there with you and to Mm. me that's that's very comforting yeah, definitely. What What about you? What surprised you about season one? Well, I, I think it's surprising just how in people sharing their stories that you get some of the emotion of it too. You you get people's hearts out on the table and their passion, their sadness. Um, when when you shared your story, that was very evident. Uh, I I felt it in sharing my story. So these are these are not just like topics that are fun to talk about. So I think letting ourselves go there draws me in. I think it draws other people in uh, as well as they listen because they know it's it's real. And I think that's really important for people now that, you, you know, you're listening to something. You want to connect with what's real. You don't want to connect with things that are overly produced or, um, or made up or, you know, too shiny to believe. Yeah, I think that is, that's been a challenge too, is for us to not try to make a product out of this, mm-hmm. you know, like, like we're trying to produce something that, that is supposed to be authentic, but it isn't really authentic. It's rehearsed and wrote. And, um, and so we've had to rely a lot more on off the cuff and the, I, I can feel this pull in myself to, 
try and script all of it out and to, you know, to make it look shiny, like you just said. And, um, and I just, I think what people, uh, what appeals to people, at least from the feedback that we've gotten is that it is genuine and authentic and you don't feel like you're listening to a professional radio host. You know, you, you feel like you're listening to a story of somebody that you might run into at church or at work or, you know, something like that. And I, I think that's really what we were going for in the first place. And that I'm, I'm glad that that's continued on and that will continue to be kind of the flavor of, of this podcast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people have told me I sound professional, but I, I didn't know what kind of feedback you were getting. So uh, I think you did great, man. <laughs> well, people were just kind of silent about how I sound. So I don't know how to take that. Nobody said anything. They're like, man, that Paul guy, he really does sound good. Yeah, it's I, I do a lot of vocal practice. My wife's a speech therapist, so yeah. <laughs> so tell people a little bit about season two, Kevin. What are what's our theme? What are we going for? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, it the theme is the same, and you know what we are what we are driving at. What we kind of the the thing that's been underlying all of our conversations is this idea that. Um, our starting place as human beings is isolation and the journey is to move towards connection. And that's a theme that um, is, we believe it's universal. We believe it's, it's uh, applicable to all human experience. And so um, we had kind of focused in on leaders in season one, but as we've talked and as we've, really kind of reflected back on some of the main themes that have come out of uh, the different podcasts that we've done. Um, we recognize that, that this is something that's applicable to everybody and not just leaders. And so a lot of the people we'll, we will interview will be in leadership positions, but we don't, we also don't want to just assume that the message is only for people who who carry those positions or those titles because um, some of the feedback that we've gotten along the way as well has been like, I know that I'm not your target demographic here, but this, this is meaningful to me. This is something that I needed to hear. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I think that, uh, it's important for us to hear those stories too, and, and to also get uh, the feedback and the questions. And so one of the things we are, are thinking about is towards the end of this season, having one episode that's just completely devoted to any questions that come up from those that have been listening and want to explore certain topics or have questions about certain things that we, we dive into, but maybe uh, could go even deeper into. And so we really want you to be thinking of what questions come up as you uh, listen to different people's stories and then send those in, use the, the connection in the notes, the email address, send in those questions and then we'll have uh, an episode or, or maybe two episodes that just dive into those questions toward the end of season two. Yeah, and we really hope that people will, um, will also you know, share this with as many people as you can, because there may be questions, you may not have any questions, but there may be people out there that do have questions that are really pertinent to uh, the content that we're trying to get out here. So we, we definitely want you to share um, with all of your, all the folks in your circle um, and make sure that you're, you know, liking the episodes, make sure that you're downloading them and subscribing to them because that helps us you know, continue to expand what we're doing and get the word out. Right. And so without any further ado, uh, we're going to jump into this first interview with Josh Ross. Thank you for waiting around. If you've been waiting to, to hear Josh and kick off season two. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Created for Connection. I'm your host, Kevin Shelby, and joined here with Paul McMullen, my co-host. Hey, Paul. Hey, Kevin. How's uh, life? I, it's been okay. I, I woke up this morning with the room spinning, which doesn't happen much. Not physically spinning. I, it was vertigo. 
Vertigo. Yeah. What exactly is Vertigo, Paul? I'm not sure it's a real thing. It's a song by U2. That was my experience before today. And then it's it's an experience of, uh, I think it's an inner ear, some kind of crystal misplacement, and you start to <laughs> feel like the room is spinning. So, um, you know, you can do these uh, physical therapy um, practices, or I, I know they do it in physical therapy, where you like launch yourself backwards and kind of spin your head from one side and the other. And I didn't know how to do those very well, but I tried them and it, it made it worse. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I recommend doing some research before you do that. <laughs> so Paul, did you say inner ear crystals? Yeah, I know that sounds weird, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's something to do with these little, they call them crystals in somewhere in your ear that helps you maintain balance. Jo uh, our, our guest is nodding his head. Pretty sure. So I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. I'm pretty sure it's not a thing. It's it sounds made up. That sounds like I don't know some some weird theory. Are you probably they probably then tell you to go get one of those candles that you burn in your ear that sucks things out, right? It's just a money making scheme. Uh, now that deserves some explanation too. But I've heard of that. It, it's a way of removing earwax. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. crystals. Crystals. <laughs> a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, I bet you didn't think this was the kind of banter we do at the start of the first episode of season two. Well, are you talking are you talking to me or Josh? I'm talking to you. Oh. Josh doesn't know what we're what to expect. I know. We haven't even gotten to what I I've got to share with you about what's been going on at my house lately. Oh, dang. Let's let's bring Josh into this. Let's introduce him and then do that. That sounds great. All right. So our guest for today is Josh Ross. He is the lead minister at Sycamore View Church of Christ here in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, and Josh is is here to share with us a little bit about his journey in ministry and um, and going through some grief that he experienced early on. And so we are we are so grateful to have Josh on. Josh, you want to say hello to our listeners? Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, it's an honor to be on. This is season two, episode one, right? Yes, it is. It is. Yes. So, I mean, a great honor to be able to, to be a part of trying to kick off a new season. Man, the whole crystal ear thing, man, I'm intrigued now. Like I'm going to I'm going to find myself later on this afternoon in place of sermon prep doing a little Google, trying to educate myself just in case I wake up a little dizzy sometime soon. But, hey, man, and anytime I get to hang out with a dude in Memphis and a guy in Dallas, Fort Worth, like this just, this just feels like home. These are yeah, all my families back in Dallas, Fort Worth. So this, it just feels right. So it's a, it's a, it's an honor to be on. Man, we're so glad that you, that you could join us, Josh. And, um, and looking forward to our conversation today. Um, However, I'm I'm not I'm not going to let us get into the conversation until I get to tell you guys what's been going on at my house. Are y'all ready yeah, for this? Yeah. What's been going on? Thank you, thank you, Paul, for asking. Um. So last Friday, my wife calls me up and she says, "Kevin, we have a problem at the house," and I'm like. Okay, we had we'd had some leaking over the weekend and the weekend before and stuff like that. And she's like, uh, you got to come home. And the last time she said we have a problem, you got to come home. It was because there was a frog, a giant frog that had gotten stuck under a door and it was half dead and she didn't she wouldn't didn't want to mess with it. She but she didn't tell me what was wrong until I got home. Right. So I'm like, is this another frog thing? And she's like, no, let me show you what's going on. So she, she puts me on FaceTime and she shows me this tiny little rat looking thing that's sitting on our front front doorstep. It turns out it was a baby squirrel and he hit, he was in the rain drenched he looked pathetic. He, he was just sitting there waiting for some predator to pick him off. 
So I'm like, all right, I'm coming home. I'll take care of it. Cause she doesn't do rodents. So I come home and I, I grab some gloves and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with this thing? So I, I find a towel and I pick, pick him up and he starts screaming this. It's really like this cute little squirrel scream and I dry him off and I put him in a little box and, um, and I'm thinking, okay, we're going to like, I don't know, return him to the wild or something like that. Well, we start researching this stuff and you can't just take a baby squirrel and put them back in the wild. I mean, they'll die. And so this squirrel has become our pet. <laughs> this squirrel is, is like my son, when he gets home from school, he goes and he puts him on his shoulder and the squirrel like rides around on my son's shoulder and like down his shirt and get in your pockets. I mean, we've, we've named him professor Quirrell after the Harry Potter character. Um, and like, he's now a part of the family, but we, we have a pet squirrel as of right now. <laughs> Josh, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, seven plus years ago, I would have been like, that's really cool, man. You were really kind. And then about seven years ago, squirrels got in my attic and my, the whole thinking I had about squirrels being cute, it, it changed about seven years ago. So there's still some animosity and bitterness I'm working through in my own life. So I'm, I'm trying to process this in a loving, compassionate way. Uh, and dude, you know what? I'm rooting for you, Kevin. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> My, well, my perception of squirrels was the Christmas vacation jumping out of the Christmas tree on grandma's face kind of attack you squirrel. And so like, I was nervous about even handling this thing with my bare hands, but he doesn't bite. He doesn't, I mean, he does have like prickly little claws, but, and they can hurt, but not too bad. Uh, but he's like super sweet. He's really, really the sweet squirrel. Maybe you should have fed those squirrels and made them your pets. Yeah, so did you name it? And two, have you been to the pet store to buy anything for it? Because that's what takes a relationship to a whole nother level. Yeah, we we have gone to the pet store and bought some food and, yes, and some cat's milk that cost me $17. <laughs> no, cat, you bought cat's milk? Cat, yeah, kitten milk. It's it was, over. Man. It's over. It's done. My wife does not There's, want it to be over. She wants to get rid of this thing. So she's like, you are, she, she told me last night, she's like, you are crazy. I mean, I think she really thinks I am a lunatic. Oh, there's so I, many things. I needed so to share that. Story. I know. I needed our yeah. listeners to know that I have a pet squirrel. Yeah. This, this could become a Shelby YouTube story, you know, kind of drop every week. Like, here's the life of, with the squirrel in the Shelby house, week two. And just see, see how it plays out. <laughs> Honestly, this could be a better podcast topic is just your pet squirrel. Like, we can just go with that for a whole season. I, I think it'd be great. There's some spiritual lessons to be learned here. You know, like, like experience changes perception, right? You know, like Josh had, he was fond of squirrels until he had this terrible experience of them chewing up his attic and now he has a different perception of them you know i brought in very lovingly like jesus would an animal that's part of god's creation and and have given the squirrel a home and now you know now i love nature more than i did before so you know there's some real strong spiritual themes here and when you realize that you're going to have to release the squirrel uh, because it potentially has rabies and because it's a, a wild creature and it breaks you and your family's hearts, you're going to experience grief, which is today's topic. Man, that is really... <laughs> that was, first of all, that was a terrible segue. And second of all, that's really cruel of you to say those things, to make me go there right before we're trying to interview somebody, Okay. I but yeah, mind in that space. All right. Well, let's talk about Josh. Let's get to your story because that's way more important than my pet squirrel. Um, you know, I think maybe it would be good for our listeners if you just kind of took a little bit of time to give kind of the 50,000 foot overview of, of your story, your journey, 
to getting to where uh, you are today. Um, maybe yes. just start with what what made you want to get into ministry and then how that happened and what unfolded after that. Yeah, uh, man, I, my dad was a preacher. He became a preacher when I was eight years old, but I never felt the pressure, even as a PK, to uh, step into full-time local church work. I had an encounter with God uh, toward the end of, uh, I guess, when I was 16 years old that just radically transformed my life, my affections, appreciation, admiration for Jesus uh, just was taken to a whole nother level. And at that time, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew I wanted to live for Jesus. So I, I knew that I could be a football coach, teacher, some other uh, vocation. But my junior, senior year of high school, I had multiple opportunities to begin speaking at FCA, Young Life, youth group devotionals, and just fell in love with it. And, and, and in that process, just felt a call on my life. When I went to college, I had one, like, plan A. Plan A was I wanted to be a, a preacher, a lead minister to church. Like, that was it. I had no plan B. I had no minor. Looking back, I wish I would have had some kind of minor just to help educate me on some other things in life. But uh, I went to college knowing what I wanted to do with my life. I went straight from undergrad to grad school. All seven years was in Abilene. Uh, and so at the age of 25, I had a, a few opportunities. My wife and I ended up moving to Houston, where I preached at a at a church there for a couple of years. And, you know, the one thing we did not want to do was uh, leave college, go preach at somewhat a smaller church. It was a couple hundred members, but then use it as a stepping stone to get to a larger church. So uh, we were not interested in leaving. Uh, we didn't imagine ourselves ever living outside of Texas. And um, Sycamore View called uh, three different times. We said no to conversations, the first two, and then a grandfather in the faith, a guy named Lynn Anderson, called me and said, Josh, there's a church in Memphis. I've been doing some consulting with them. They're about to call you for the third time, and I just want you to talk to them. Uh, so we did. Next thing we know, we came, came out on an interview. We were offered a job, and uh, we moved here in the spring of 2008. And this has been our home ever since. Wow. Uh, I, I'm glad you listened to Lynn Anderson. I've spent just a little bit of time with him, and he, he's a great, great mentor, a great man. Yeah. And, you know, what's ironic, Lynn was sitting on the porch of a missionary in Zambia who was a Sycamore View missionary when he called me in Houston to tell me, hey, this church is about to call you again. But man, Lynn, all of us have that, you know, maybe a handful of people that if they called and asked us to do anything, just our love and respect for them, we would do it. Um, and, you know, when we moved here in 2008, our oldest son had just turned one. And it wasn't just a love for the church, even though we we, we love Sycamore View, but we uh, quickly developed a deep love for for Memphis, the 901, the the story of this city and have been working now for 14 years to kind of find our place in that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and I hear you about, you know, just kind of the attraction of the city. There's there's some unique qualities to it that um, that seem to, you know, if you let it kind of kind of grab you, you know, it pulls you in and it's it's fun. It's fun to be a part of the 901. Josh, you know, a big part of your story when you when you first moved to Memphis is um, uh, some things that happened within your family, and maybe it would be good just to kind of give us an idea of what 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 happened when you first got here, and um, and how that kind of plays a part, a big part in your story. Yeah, it does, and you know, it's a, it sounds. Uh, for me to say, I love talking about grief and suffering. Like, I don't know if that's something you should love to talk about, but I really enjoy it. I, I think in the future for the church to be able to have these kind of conversations, I think it's going to matter for evangelism, for uh, relational connection, our ability just to give space to talk about brokenness and pain. And I think it's a uh, thing right now, it may be worth even saying that death is not the only grief inducing in event that happens in our lives. So, I mean, I can, I can look back on moments of grief and seasons of grief uh, that happen either in my own life or the way I came alongside of other people or in my early twenties when I was like really turned on to justice work and like just stepping into the brokenness of the world. But I, it, yeah, Kevin, I had been here a year and a half. So this was January of 2010 when my wife and I, um, we were making a, a really radical, a big decision in our lives. And at the time we were living in Arlington, which is, uh, you know, exit 2425 outside of Memphis. And we loved our neighborhood. We loved our cove, but we were making a decision 
to sell our home and to move into an under-resourced community at that time. And this was a, a season of prayer and fasting and discernment for us. And it was uh, when we had just made that decision to put a house on the market back in 2010, when no one should be trying to sell a home, you know, the, the housing market had crashed. Uh, but this was this was a movie we wanted to make. And as that happened, I got a call from my sister and she had been real sick for about five days. And I mean, long story short, man, she in, ended up she she had a form of strep throat, uh, but wasn't treated for it. This was back when uh, H1N1, uh, you know, a flu a variation of a flu was really running rampant. And that, they thought that's what she had. So she was treated for that. But strep A had entered into her body. And by the time she finally got to a clinic, she was in full-blown septic shock. So my sister, this was the oldest child in our family, 31 years old. I was 29. My brother was 26. Uh, and she had an 18-day battle in a hospital there in Fort Worth, uh, where there were moments we thought we lost her, moments we thought she was going to be all right, hard moments that were made of having to amputate her legs, thinking that the infection had gone to her lower legs, and if they removed that, then maybe we could protect the, you know, the, the, the uh, organs and at least have her wit and her mind for the rest of her life. And I think it was day 16, the doctor said, hey, if you want to let your people know what to pray, because at this time, there had been a prayer movement of 20,000 plus people. I mean, there were hundreds of churches all over the world that were praying. We had a care page. It was just going crazy. I mean, so many people were invested in that story. And on uh, day 16, the doctor said, here's what you need to pray is that this sepsis will not go to the brain. Like we cannot let that happen. And on uh, day 17, the sepsis had gone to the brain. So her 18th day in the hospital, February 22nd of 2010, uh, my family was called in, <clears throat> excuse me, my family was called in to, to tell my sister bye. So I found myself as a 29 year old minister doing a funeral for my 31 year old sister who left behind a husband and nine-year-old daughter and and i'm in a family just full of ministers and i know we'll talk about this some probably throughout this conversation but you know we're full of ministers my mom's a, a marriage and family therapist now she does a lot of grief work my brother was a worship minister and and like our lives had been spent like caring for other people so trying to step into a space of letting people care for us was one of the hardest things our family uh, had to navigate uh, just the that was kind of our introduction to a deep deep uh, form of grief that you know we're still processing and working out in our lives to this day so Josh what was what was the fallout of that happening in your family for you personally what what can you talk to us a little bit about the the days weeks months following that time of of loss what was going on in your inner world? Man, all right. Uh, I don't want to go down Enneagram route too much, but have y'all done some Enneagram stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm a seven, like all set, you know, adventure. Uh, <laughs> I can reframe anything, and especially for sevens, like we just, we we don't know and don't want to deal with pain, so we sweep it under a rug. And this was a time when I tried to do that for for a while, and part of what I think brought me out of just trying to minimize or sweep it under a rug was just the role I'm in as a preacher. I mean, I was a young preacher at a fairly large church. Uh, and I mean, I, I could feel myself stepping up on a Sunday and there were people who were with me, but they're like wondering like, what is this event going to do to this, to our, to our preacher? Like, what's this going to do to him? What's it going to make him into? And I knew how I process the next six to 12 months of my life would have a, a an impact for the rest of my life on the kind of dad I am, the kind of husband, the kind of preacher, how I think about God. I, I Looking back, I wish I would have started doing therapy. I didn't start going to therapy until I was probably 33 or 34 years old. So it was a few years after that that I did. <clears throat> uh, but it was the one time in my life where journaling really mattered for me. Like I've always had these the great ambition, like to be a <clears throat> somebody who, who journals well. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that every January buys a new journal and gives it a shot and gets like three entries in and then that's it. And then, you know, next January buy another one. Uh, but I started journaling in the season of Lent that year. So my commitment was for 40 days, I was going to spend 30 minutes every day. And I was just going to process grief and suffering with God. And I felt like God gave me permission in that time just to lay out every emotion, every question I had. Uh, and that developed in, into what was my my first book. And uh, the editor and I, I mean, a whole team had to really strip it down because, man, it was it was um, I mean, it was PG-13. Uh, uh, it was raw. 
some of the questions after God were big questions. Some of those that I've probably worked out and processed on a, on a stage on Sundays and some I just could not take into a, a larger setting. But man, that, that season was so good uh, for my soul to feel like the grace of God, <clears throat> excuse me, could carry me through uh, <clears throat> any emotion, any question I had. And to come out of that believing, you know, just a few things that the resurrection of Jesus is the best news for the world. And this is going to continue to change my life forever. That uh, God can get lower than our lowest low. Um, that death doesn't win. And there were just these, like, some of these anthems in my life that were solidified in that time that I think gave me a foundation that I continue to build on, both in my preaching, my theology, how I, just how I work, work out life. You know, Josh, as someone who's gone through seminary, you mentioned those three beliefs that solidified after that time. And I think you, you learn a lot. Uh, if you grow up in a, a church setting, for example, you learn a lot about what to believe. And then maybe you, you process through some of the, the thought world of that in seminary. But it's, it's such a different experience to say, my hope hangs on the resurrection. I've, I'm pinning all of it, and to know, like in your heart, how how real that is. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing. And I guess I want to hear more about how you felt towards God in in those days and moments. Um, maybe right at right when your your sister died, and then afterwards, as you had that time of grief and mourning. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're all having trouble with our voices today. Yeah, what was that like? Did you feel disconnected? Did you feel close but angry? What was that like for you? Yeah, I consider 2010 and early 2011 to be a, a year of a faith crisis for me. But for me, my crisis was never, does God exist or does God not exist? I, we all know, and maybe maybe one of you, uh, maybe uh, you know, you've been down that road before of just questioning the existence of God and do I believe and why do I believe? And uh, for me, it was never questioning the existence of God. It was um, a long season of questioning the intervention of God, because how I thought about that was going to have an impact on my prayer life, how I taught intercession, and even in my role, how I help lead people deeper into, you know, the suffering of the world. So when does God choose to stick God's hand into a situation in the heal and perform miraculous wonders? And when does God seem, uh, you know, to keep his hands off? Uh, and part of the journaling was trying to process just the intervention of God, because I think there are times where the easiest thing to do is just that, that let's just believe God set up the world, God set it in motion. There's a story of Jesus, of salvation, and then God kind of took his hands off, and then one day God's going to come back and set everything right. Uh, and uh, maybe the easiest thing to do is to try to or just live life with uh, just very low expectations of what God can do so that you never feel like you're let down. And I had, I mean, I, there were a lot of days where I just had it out with God. I don't know any other way to say it. I just had it out with God. There was uh, anger I had to process with God. And the way I approached that was I've had people sit in my office, uh, you know, saying I, I'm, I'm mad at God, but I don't feel like I can talk to God about that. And what's usually my response is, do you think God can hear our conversation right now? And if God can, what kind of, if we really believe God's a loving father, what kind of parent doesn't want to sit with their children to hear them process whatever it is going on in their heart and just trust that God's grace can hold us through that. So I, I had to work through a lot of anger. I felt disappointment. This is why uh, Philip Yancey has been one of my favorite authors, you know, because I feel like Philip Yancey doesn't feel like we have to always tie up faith with a really neat bow. It leaves room for questions, for mystery. Um, so for me, just to, to I, I came through that season still having deep faith in a God who can and, and does perform miracles and wonders, not all the time, not as much as we would like, um, and also being able to have a prayer life that I felt like uh, became more honest than ever before, which I think has been a real strength in how we've been able to talk about prayer, uh, you know, here in the life of Sycamore View. Well, and you mentioned, you know, um, you guys had like 20,000 people plus praying for your sister, you know, hundreds of churches all over the world. And we, we have this, um, I think it's bad theology that if we just have enough faith, then the measure of our faith is going to, is going to 
create an outcome, right? Like if God looks at us and says, okay, Josh, I see, you know, you've, you've tipped over the 50% point of faith that, okay, yes, I'll grant your wish. Um, and that's, we've treated prayer and, and, uh, requests from God like that in a lot of ways. And so I could see where some of that underlying theology might get challenged and, um, and how that could really be tough because I, I think I would go there, you know, in my own faith. I mean, I remember when my daughter was born, my oldest daughter, Nora, she was born five weeks early and she had to be in the NICU. And, um, I, I walked in and saw her, her, she wasn't breathing well enough. And I saw that they had a, um, they had an IV stuck in her, in the top of her head in the soft spot of her head. Cause that's the best vein for a baby that size. And she was in this little isolate and we couldn't touch her. They, they had gloves that you had to put on in the isolate. And I just remember thinking, this is my fault. Uh, you know, I didn't have enough faith for her to, you know, or, or I, I didn't act good enough or whatever. Like, I think when those crisis moments come, you know, from a psychological perspective, we turn on ourselves and we, we look at where we miss the mark. And, um, yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm interested in your, you're having these, these inner, struggles that you're putting on paper did you feel like you had spaces where you could talk to other people about that that you could really process that out loud because a lot of times ministers feel like they have to stay isolated in their in their struggle and that's that's what we're getting at here is you know what what is it like to be a minister to walk through some real dark periods of faith yeah that's a great question let me let me go at it uh two ways one one thing I had to dis to discern every week is how much of my brokenness do I work out on a stage or a platform on a Sunday, right? Because I do think people are drawn to transparency and honesty, and how much of that did God really want me in a space? If hey, there are times I may have you, you know, teach and talk through this, but right now, like, there's some stuff I need to do with you, and this is going to take a while. And I hope I navigated that fairly well. And I hope that makes sense, even how I, I talked about it. Sycamore View was great. Through, through Jenny's, through her sickness, her death, her funeral, months later, I mean, Sycamore View was so good at uh, allowing my, my wife and I to heal. I mean, from, I mean, everything from as small as bringing the food to the prayers they prayed, the grace they gave. We had to make multiple trips back to Texas just over the next few months, because my family was grieving and there was, uh, you know, birthdays and, and things. So, I mean, they were just so great. I, I'm for the rest of my life. I, uh, I will just sing Sycamore Views praises for what they did uh, for us in that season. But man, I had just developed over the last two years before that death, a really close group of um, just preacher buddies. And man, these were guys that we were talking every week. We were getting together quite often, every chance we could. Uh, even when we were at conferences, we would go to lunches and man, they became one of the best sounding boards for me just to give me space to ask questions, to process life. They never came at me as if they were trying to fix me. It just became a safe space for us just to, uh, you know, to process pain. What kind of like what kind of processing were they doing with you? Was that like one-on-one -on -one or in group settings? You know, I'm just trying to think through it because it seems like you were able to walk this road in a healthy way, you know, in a way that, that didn't leave you in, you know, spiritual wreckage. And so what, when you think about the connections that you had, what specifically were you doing that you think helped you do that in a healthy way? Yeah, and Kevin is probably a little bit of both. I mean, there were those, there were a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations, which uh, it was both me reaching out to people. It was also people who I had given permission to intrude and to step into my life. So they were coming at me too. Um, I mean, there were, there were group settings and really that journaling that I was doing when, when I realized that this, uh, that this could become a, a manuscript, and when I got into the process with a publisher, there was a group of friends, some of those same friends who they 
it were they 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 were uh so helpful to me in taking that journal into a manuscript and really pushing me how I was even processing grief in written form, which was a real healing uh part of my just of my own heart and my story as I as I was processing on paper through thoughts of just who God is and what this even you know engagement or social engagement look like after we've journeyed you know with the, a tragic death and and things like that so I mean there were multiple avenues of community that 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 served me in that season you know Josh um, one of the things that that I'm going to do now is uh, facilitate groups for processing and we sometimes will ask people when they're going through something you know what is it that you need right now what do you what need do you have and then who are you going to ask to help you with that and it's really it's difficult especially if you've been in a uh, if you've been a person or you've been in a family system that was not well practiced in asking for things from others and even addressing or thinking about oh do i have needs right now because either you're outward focused or you you've just learned not to not to um think about yourself in those ways so as you look back on that time what were some of the needs that were harder to ask for as you were as you were struggling through those different spaces or you know i'm i'm assuming there but it maybe that maybe you didn't experience that what was what was that like for you oh man um that's a great question um I would probably have to spend a little more time thinking back on needs that were not being filled in my life in that time. Um, and maybe it's just the way I look back. I, I, maybe I've spent so much time thinking about all that God provided for me in that season, how God provided me with everything I needed. I'd probably have to reflect a little more on needs that weren't met. If they weren't, it was probably because of my own choice of isolation. It was probably my own choice of not, wanting to open up certain spaces in me. Yeah, right on. I understand that. And I understand how, well, what I appreciate in that time is you had this group and, and I really liked how you said they didn't try to fix you. They just sat with you. They, they just sat with you kind of like the picture of in the book of Job, how Job's friends just they just sit at first and they don't, they don't bring up all their objections. And then, then when they do open their mouths, that's when the problems come, when they're trying to make sense of it and trying to figure, you know, figure out who to blame. Um, and did you ever experience maybe from other people, did you, cause I, I've heard this about folks that go through grief. Um, they get a lot of messages from people that are not so helpful. And I, obviously we don't want to, uh, we don't want to, uh, you know, call out people by name or something, but what were some of the things that weren't as helpful that people did during your time of grief? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I could list probably a dozen phrases that I'll never forget. I tell you this, man, when, when Jenny died, um, uh, Mike Cope, a longtime preacher in Searcy and then in Texas, is a dear friend of mine. I think he was the first call I made. He had been walking with us and, um, over those few weeks. And when I called to tell him Jenny had died, of course he offered, you know, his condolences, but he said, man, I've got to tell you just right now, my one encouragement to you is this, be prepared to offer grace to people because people are going to give you the best they have to give, but sometimes it's going to be expressed in ways that could really hurt, <laughs> you know, like they really haven't thought this through theologically before they say it. So just be prepared to offer grace. And I mean, man, it, I, I, it was, uh, it was so good for my soul just to have that word. Cause I mean, there were, you know, of course you get everything of, you know, heaven needed another angel or God needed Jenny more than her nine-year-old daughter needed Jenny. Uh, and so, I mean, there are those statements that you, uh, you have to process, but even to this day, you know, when I'm walking with people, especially through death. I speak the same words over them. Just be prepared to offer grace. People are giving you the best they have to give. And I joke around, you know, the book of Job should be like three chapters, right? Bad stuff happens. The friends come, they sit and that's it, right? That's it. Uh, but instead you have, you know, 30 something chapters of, of dialogue. I, I'm So I'm an Enneagram eight, Josh. And as you're saying those phrases, like I'm getting angry, you know, I want to like come in and just, I want to be like, tell me who those people were so I can go set them straight. 
uh, I mean, people really do um, come in and say things that they, they haven't thought through, you know, and I, I know that that can be really frustrating. And I, I, I know you and I know that you probably handled those things with grace as, as Mike, you know, suggested that you do. Um, but I think that is, it kind of leads me to a question that I think would be helpful. And that is, what do you think are, obviously don't ask questions that you hadn't really thought through. That's one, but what are some do's and don'ts for walking with somebody through grief? Man, dude, I love this question. And I, and I think as churches, we should probably deal with this like every six weeks in our church. Just kind of remind people, here's some do's and don'ts because, man, we're all walking either through pain or with somebody who is. Uh, I think reiterating a couple of things maybe we've already said in, in the last 30 minutes or so, but people are not projects. Grief is not a project to be fixed. And there are times, uh, you know, just the other day, I was talking to somebody who's walking a, a grief uh, journey, and I asked them, I said, do you think God looks at you as somebody who needs to be fixed, like your grief needs to be fixed? I think that's huge, man. Grief is not to be fixed. Grief is to be carried. Like for the rest of your life, you're going to have to carry grief. So it's about how are we going to carry it? Um, don't, you know, not seeing people as theological projects. You know, especially early on in deep forms of grief is not the time for you to try to set people right theologically, even with how they process pain, even if they have questions about God. I mean, there I'm I dive into those conversations, but I don't think that's my my moment to try to fix the you know everything theologically uh, for people. I mean, a commitment to walking with people. I even encourage folks like man intrude on people's lives like. Don't just say it with your mouth, but like write it on your calendar that once a week or once a month, I'm checking in on these people, uh, showing up, being intentional with questions. And, and, you know, the big one for me that wasn't there back in 2010, but it has been in my life now for probably two or three years is to uh, when you have a moment to come alongside of people who are on whatever gr the grief journey, whatever it may be. There is a story to be told. And for most people, if we're talking about grief as death right now, most people love telling stories about those who have gone before them. So instead of me asking, how are you dealing with your dad's death? I'm going to ask, hey, hey, today, will you tell me when you think about a good memory with your dad or a healthy memory, what is a story that comes to mind? And usually, man, a smile pops on a face. And there's like a Rolodex of stories. People are just waiting to tell. So see the grief journey as stories to be told. I hear you saying, don't, uh, don't let your fear maybe of, of saying the wrong thing keep you from being inquisitive about the person. I, I don't know. It's a fine line. Can you help, just talk some more about that? Uh, yeah, sure, man. I, I think you have to take risks, right? I mean, you've... And, and to know there's not a perfect question to ask in grief. I mean, even yeah, for most of us, when, you, when you're with somebody, it's like, how are you doing? Yeah. Like, I mean, somebody who's deep in grief, I mean, they're, they're probably not doing well. Um, but trying to be just very intentional with whatever the questions may be, uh, leaning on the, the storytelling, I think is such a, a for me, it's, I found it to be a really positive, helpful, uh, therapeutic way to go. Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting about grief, this is something that, you know, just from a counseling perspective that I often tell people is that, you know, grief takes as long as it takes. You, you can't put a, a time stamp on it and say, this is the, this is when it needs to be done, you know, and, and in the meantime, people need someone to, to step in to help them process exactly how they're feeling because research shows, and this is why counseling can be so helpful for people is research shows that the closer you can get to expressing with words, what you're feeling inside, mm. the more healing and cathartic it is. You don't even have to do anything with it. Just saying it out loud and expressing that or writing it down is, is what causes the brain to be able to process that emotional state that you're in and help you to release it instead of, 
instead of moving into some unhealthy patterns of behaving. And so that process, depending on, you know, what kind of loss it is, can take a really long time, you know, and, and so many people want to put a timestamp on it and say, this is when it needs to be done. You know, what, what people don't realize is like in the DSM, the, that's the diagnostic statistical manual for mental health issues. That's where counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists go to, to uh, find criteria to diagnose somebody with a mental health disorder, like major depression or something like that. Um, there used to be under major depression, under major depressive disorder, there used to be a grief exception. In the first couple manuals, it was a year. Somebody had a grief exception for a year if they experienced depressive symptoms and had been through a significant loss. Then in the, in the next version, they gave it like a month. Until now, there is no exclusion. There's no exception for grief. I think that, I think that gives us a good indication of culturally where things have gone, that if we experience a big loss, that we shouldn't experience significant emotional reactions to it. Um, and if we do, then something's wrong. Then all of a sudden you're suffering from a bigger issue than, than what's being said. It's like, it's like saying that somebody that has a runny nose, you know, might have COVID-19 or it, or has COVID-19, right? Like, we don't do that medically, but for some reason we do that with mental health issues, specifically around the idea of grief. And I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty important thing for us in the church that we can have a counter-cultural response to that, to say, we're going to show up for you. We're going to, we're going to walk this journey with you. We're not going to put a timestamp on it. And our goal, our responsibility is to help you say exactly what it is you're feeling and thinking. Because Josh, that to me seems like the most significant thing that you did. That's why the journals were so important in your journey. Yeah. Uh, I, I love how you just articulated all of that. It makes me think of, sometimes I hang a lot of my, my work with people on some of the questions Jesus would ask. Like when Jesus was with even blind people, two different occasions, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus knew exactly what they wanted him to do, but there was something helpful about articulating the needs of your life to God. Like sometimes when I'm with people, it may just be, man, what do you, what do you want God to do for you right now? And just to get them articulating that can be so helpful. And this isn't uh, just a, like a shameless plug or a self-promotion, but my, my mom and I wrote a book uh, that came out last year called uh, Scarred Hope. It was almost like a scarred faith, which was my first book, kind of a part two, but it was my mom's way of sharing kind of part of her story of losing a daughter. But my mom's also been in the counseling world for over 20 years and has had a, a grief center now for over a decade that serves over 1,500 people a year. So this is a lot of her work. And what we did in the third section of that book is we just took 10 phrases that are often used in grief. And we just talked about them. Like, do we like them? Do we not? Are they helpful? Why do people use them? And the very first one we dealt with was, does time heal? And my mom's answer to that is no. The way she reframes it is time done well heals. Uh, not that time erases grief. Uh, man, we grieve hard because we love hard. Mm -hmm. But that time, time done well, being very intentional about how your heart is trying to reengage with God and with life. Uh, and, and that was really helpful for my mom and I to process just those 10 chapters because it helped us both process some of our ministry experience, life experience, and hopefully give people a healthier language to use, you know, as they grieve and as they walk alongside of grievers. I, I love that so much that you, you frame it around time done well, because I have seen people um, take time and not use it not use it well, meaning like they might find themselves in an addiction, um, you know, abusing alcohol or whatever to forget the pain. And I think some of that comes from the cultural messages that you shouldn't feel as bad as you do. Right. Um, and that if you do that, something's wrong, but also just not knowing what to do with their emotion and, and not having a place to go. 
and and not understanding that putting words to it can be healing so i love that idea of doing time well that's great and even man, the, even the church culture sometimes can send out the message of well if you just have faith or if you just if you really believe that you'll be reunited with your loved ones in the end then just be happy now like they wouldn't want you to be sad or I had a call the other day from someone who lost her mom eight months ago. And she's asking, why am I still sad? Like, what is wrong with me? And it's like, you're sad because there are only a handful of people in your life. You don't know life without them. Like, it's part of life. Like he tears fall from heaven. Like the same verse that says there'll be no tears in heaven also says that God wipes tears from faces. The same exact verse says that. I mean, grief is such a, a, an interesting thing because like even you, you even look at like Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I mean, what, what's the time frame? Five minutes. I don't know how long does it take to raise somebody from the dead, right? You know, whatever period of time that is, he knows that this, this is time limited, this death, but he grieves, he grieves the loss and he grieves with the people that are hurting. I, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a clear message that, Hey, you know, I don't expect you not to be sad. I, right. I don't ask that of you, you know, in fact, I, I get it. And I'm sad along with you. There's pain here because loss is hard. Loss is hard because we were created to be together, not separated. Death is not a natural part of what the created order is intended to be. It is, it is actually a reminder of of the brokenness of the world and what our sin causes. And that's painful, you know, that, that the sin in the world, the choices that Adam and Eve made in the beginning and the choices humanity has continued to make since then have caused this separation of relationship that we were not intended to experience. You know, Kevin, since you've gotten into the, the story of scripture, um, I wanted to ask Josh, and you, you brought up this some earlier on about, you, I think you mentioned three things that you felt uh, beliefs about God and, um, and who we are that were shaped during that time. I just wonder about the idea of suffering and how I, I don't feel like uh, at least the American church has done a great job preparing people to go through suffering because it's kind of, I, I sense this idea of uh, we hear, you know, somebody suffers and they're like, oh, where is God? I can't believe in God anymore because they're, you know, that I'm going through suffering. And there's this expectation almost that we're not going to suffer or God would never allow suffering to take place. And yet the, the you read the Bible, the Bible is so chock full of suffering. It, it's like a central theme of, of the epistles. It's, it's uh, Peter, Peter's letters. So I don't know. I'm just curious about what what is your story? How has it been shaped and your idea of what the Christian life looks like? How does it incorporate suffering now? Yeah, <clears throat> man, I, uh, I love this question. We could do a whole nother podcast on it. Right. So, uh, let me begin. I don't want this to sound trite or, or mean spirited, but when I hear people talk about persecution as whether you wear masks or not, or, uh, whether you can pray in a school or not. I'm like, I don't think that's what Paul is referring to when he's talking about what it means to suffer with Christ or to, to suffer. So uh, two things, I think the new Testament and the Bible does such a great job of preparing the people of God to suffer. Well, even in seasons of life when, when they are not suffering, like sometimes the best equipping we do is not to equip people when they are suffering. It's to equip people that when suffering comes, what kind of person are you going to be? Right. And that takes a lot of intentional work. And then two, to follow in the ways of Jesus, not just Paul, but in Jesus is as Christians, we often make intentional choices to step into suffering, which means we suffer. Right. We step into places of injustice to be the people of God. So sometimes it's not just the grief or the death or the death that's causing the grief is that we are as resurrected people, as people who believe in resurrection, we're going to step into places where things look like death to help bring life. And if you follow, this will be my last thing, right? If you follow how Paul and Jesus and in, in the Bible in the New Testament talk about suffering, you're able to do that with great joy because you know how the story ends. 
I mean, for my family, it was Jenny's death that gave us even more passion to engage the city of Memphis with more purpose, like even more excitement that if the resurrection of Jesus is true, like what can this not touch in our city to bring to life? And that's where I think for the people of God, like how, like we, we don't suffer like the world suffers. We suffer in a way we're suffering in hope, join hands, and this is how we do life. And that, that push into mission is not by ignoring the pain or the grief. It's not by saying, hey, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I'm going to jump into a new adventure and, and not feel these bad feelings. It's directly related to you going through that grief and suffering and death uh, in, in your own heart uh, is what I'm hearing. And I, man, yeah, we, we need a whole nother podcast on that one, man. That's, that's good stuff. Well, I, I want you to know, Josh, I'm like sitting here going, let's, let's go, man. Let, whatever, let's do it with some, let's go find something to do because I'm inspired, you know I mean? And yet um, I also know that that doesn't come from a disingenuous place for you, that passion that you have, that it comes from suffering itself. It, you know, is ignited from this place of wrestling with God um, in, in a way that like, like, I don't know, maybe you, you wouldn't have the same kind of passion if you hadn't gone through that dark period with him. And that's not to, that, that's not at all for me trying to indicate some reason for your sister's death, but to, recognize that it is from those places of deep suffering that that god then leads us into seeing things from a whole different perspective and seeing people from a whole different perspective um and that creates some passion for for the justice seeing justice happen around us and seeing hope restored and you know all of those things that um that are born out of a place of difficulty so I think this is this is a, a good place for us to um, to put a an ellipsis because we need to continue the conversation, right? I don't want to put a period or an exclamation point on it because I want to keep having this conversation with you, and I think we do need to have you back on at some point. Um, but Josh, this has been so life giving to me, and I really really appreciate you taking the time to sit with Paul and I and and share this, this tough story, but, um, one that has some really amazing, uh, messages for the people that are listening to this. So thank you so much for being here, Josh. Hey, thank you guys. I'm honored and hey, keep up the good work. Yeah, I do feel like Josh, we just let you scratch the surface on so many themes and it sounds like you've written a lot about this. So in the notes, uh, of this episode, we're going to include links to uh, what you've written. I love that you wrote a book with your mom too. That's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> one of the greatest honors of my life, man. It was and, awesome. And those two books are Reentry, and the one with your mom is called. Tell us again. Well, Scarred Faith was the first one I wrote that the journal became. Uh, my mom and I wrote Scarred Hope. There is a book Reentry that I wrote that uh, deals with. Uh, 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 light and darkness, a lot of this. And then this past year, I just, uh, I wrote a book called anchoring in the storm that, uh, I wrote that for the Easter journey leading up to Easter to kind of help people use storm imagery and suffering as a way to approach resurrection and Easter. Excellent. And where can people find those books? Man, all five books you could get on Amazon. A few of them you could probably find at uh, Christian bookstores. But I think that doesn't Amazon run everything now? Like that, that's where we buy. That's where we buy toothpaste from, right? So <laughs> You're Amazon, right. Josh Ross, you know, the books will come up and have fun. Awesome. So, yeah, order his books there and your cat milk for your pet squirrels. <laughs> anything else you need, just go ahead and do that right after you listen to this. <laughs> that's look, right look that stuff that stuff must have gold in it or something i mean it's so expensive and we bought a tiny little dropper and and the cat won't or the the squirrel won't even drink it either so i'm so mad it knows, it knows it's not a cat hey i'm just saying you're gonna have to put that in your cereal or something man you can't let 17 dollars go to waste <laughs> i'm hoping one of our listeners could use it and will reach out to me i'll send it to you via mail so Oh gosh. Well, that, that brings us to a good close. <laughs> Josh, thanks again, man. We appreciate you so much. And for everybody that's listening, 
we encourage you, uh, especially if you're going through grief, um, to pursue safe relationships, as Josh described, people that would just sit with him and let him tell his story and, and process that some. And if you don't have that, uh, seek it out. If you're, if you're in a relationship with someone that is going through grief, uh, we just encourage you to engage them in helpful ways. Don't try to fix them, but just practice love and grace and curiosity with them and what they're going through and, and with no time limit on it. So, so much more that could be said, but we want you to know that you are not alone. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and that Josh's story has expanded your understanding of grief and how we can walk with others in their loss. Please check out our podcast notes for helpful resources and links to Josh's books. You'll also find an email address there where you can contact us about any topics that you'd be interested in, as well as if you have a story that you'd like to share. Special thanks to Cheyenne Metters for producing our music, and thank you to Wellspring Process Groups for sponsoring this episode. If Creative for Connection has been helpful for you, please drop a review on whichever streaming service you're using. And please, share with your friends and anyone you think might appreciate these conversations. We'll see you next time.